Lord, I want to ask you to speak to us today. And Father, our hope and, and one of the reasons why we gather around the Bible is, Father, we confess that we believe the Bible is the Word of God. So when we study the Bible, when, when we declare the truth of the Bible, we get to hear the voice of God. And so we gather around the Bible and we ask that we would hear you speak today. So would you teach us, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, what you'd want us to learn today. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and I ask for hearts to believe and obey everything we encounter in your word. And Lord, we know we're not the only church in this community, and so I pray for our brothers and sisters at Merit Assembly of God. Specifically, I pray for Pastor Bob Arthurs, Lord, that you would fill him with the knowledge of your word and the power of your spirit. I pray that he would know and love and live and proclaim the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we give you these moments that follow. We trust you with them, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say today. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Joshua 2. Joshua 2. You know the traditional Christmas text, Joshua chapter 2. Last week, we began a series of studies leading us up to Christmas. And what we began to look at last week was that from the very beginning of the Bible, we find that God made a promise to Adam and Eve in the garden. He promised that one day a child would be born who would come into this broken world that now is under a curse because of sin, and that child would do battle with the enemy of God. That child would be wounded in that battle, but in the process of being wounded, that child would crush, would destroy the very enemy of God. And of course, we know that child has a name, and his name is Jesus. And because of the fact we know that about Jesus, we see that from the very beginning of the Bible, when the promise of God comes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we are seeing the story of Christmas unfold. So the Bible is not a bunch of disconnected stories that are unrelated to one another. The Bible is one big story, the story of God becoming a man, coming into this world in the person of Jesus to redeem and rescue people who are broken and captive under the curse of sin. That's why we've called this series, It's All a Christmas Story. We want to look at the various stories that we find in the Scripture, and we want to see how they are related back to the one big story of the Bible, the story of God coming to earth in the person of Jesus. And this morning, what I'm praying will take place is that we will see clearly an example of how the stories of the Bible are woven together to tell that one big story of Jesus. And as I was praying and thinking about this morning, there was one story that jumped out at me, and I felt like it was the Holy Spirit leading me to Joshua chapter 2. And for those of you who aren't familiar with where we are in the Bible here in Joshua 2, let me give you a real quick recap so you can know the one big story that we're following along with. Uh, In the beginning, when Adam and Eve fell, uh, sin came into the world, and after Adam and Eve, we find that men and women only grow more and more wicked to the point that God chose to destroy the world in a global flood. He chose one man and his family to save from that destruction. Anybody know that man's name? 
Noah. I, I had forgotten. I always call him Jonah, so I wanted to make sure I got it right. Thank you for the reminder. But Noah and his family there are chosen in the middle of all that destruction to repopulate the world. And what we find from that story of Noah and the flood is even if God began everything all over again with just a few people, even the very best people on earth, we'd still mess the thing up because at our heart, we don't need second chances. We need a savior. We need to be rescued from our sin, not just given another start. And so what we see is that God is continuing that story of bringing that Savior, that rescuer. Later on in the Bible, what we find is that Noah's family begins to repopulate the world. And God chooses, again, another man named Abraham. And that man named Abraham receives an amazing promise from God that through Abraham's descendants, God would make a mighty nation on the face of this earth. As a matter of fact, that nation was his chosen nation. They got to experience the blessing of God. They got to experience the promises and the word of God in a special way. They even had the opportunity to experience the very presence of God on earth in a special land that God was going to give them. It was a land that we refer to as the promised land. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be a nation who lived in a land that he promised to give them. That land was called Canaan. And in that land of Canaan, we find that there were many enemies that grew up that inhabited the land. And while they're inhabiting the land, Abraham's descendants go from being one child named Isaac to millions of people in the nation of Israel. As millions of people, they lived as slaves in the nation of Egypt under the hard hand of a guy named Pharaoh. And God again chooses to show that he's going to send a rescuer, a savior. He shows that by sending a man named Moses to go into the slavery of Egypt and deliver his people from the bondage of their sin. He shows us that Jesus, as the rescuer, will do something great, greater than even Moses. He'll come to helpless people, hopeless people who are enslaved, not just under the tyranny of a, of a man, but under their own sin. He, he will send a rescuer who will deliver them. And so Moses delivers the people of God out of the land of Egypt. And many of you guys know this. Right after they're delivered from Egypt, they come across this place that, that's called the Red Sea. It's a, a barrier that they can't get beyond. And God does an incredible, marrier, uh, incredible, incredible miracle at the Red Sea. He parts the waters and he allows his people to pass through on dry land. And so right there in the middle of the wilderness, God's showing his ability to save and rescue in the middle of impossible odds. But once again, you guys know the story. The people rebel. They grow more and more wicked. No matter how much God shows off his power, no matter how much he gives them his presence, they still don't believe God. They still don't trust him. They still don't rely on him. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, men and women choose instead of hearing the word of God and believing to hear the lie of God's enemy and believe that instead. So because they refuse to believe God, these people, this children of Abraham, this nation of Israel wanders around the desert. Anybody know how long they wander around the desert? 40 years, 40 years they live in the desert. They live until they're finally 
ready to believe God. The generation that didn't believe faded away and the generation that would believe came into being. And in that generation, there were two people from the previous generation who had believed God. And because they had believed God, they were able to go in with this new generation of Israelites. Anybody remember their names? Joshua and Caleb. They're two people who believe God. They're going to go into the land God's promised because he'll give his land. He will give his promise to people who will take him at his word, people who will believe him. So right there in that story, Moses dies and the generation that didn't believe God dies with him. And this new generation comes up that's ready to believe God. They're led by Joshua who's going to take them into the promised land that God gave to them as their inheritance. And just as he's going into the promised land, Joshua sends two spies into the land of Canaan. And they go to the city. The city's name is Jericho. And Jericho's a strategic city in this land. And so these spies go into Jericho. And that's where we are in, in Joshua too. Two spies coming into Jericho. And they meet a woman named Rahab. Now, Rahab is a citizen of Canaan. She's a prostitute in the city of Jericho. It's believed that she probably ran like a small motel that was a part of her business. So people who would pass through Jericho would often stay with her even if they were not engaging her as a prostitute. And that's probably how these faithful spies wind up in the house of Rahab. And so as they're talking to Rahab, she does an amazing thing as a citizen of Canaan. She promises to help them. She agrees to actually align her life with the nation of Israel. And if we're not careful, when you get to this point in the story, you're going to think that this is some isolated story about a woman who wants out of her life of prostitution. She wants, she wants out of this city where she grew up that she knows represents a dead-end road. She knows that a nation's going to come, so she wants to be saved and part of that nation, and she makes a deal. And you'll think this is a story about a couple of spies that are finding out the, the deal in Jericho, and they're understanding what's actually going on so they can have a surprise attack. You'll think this is a story like that, but remember, the Bible is a book about God. And so the question we always have is, what's God doing? This isn't just a collection of unrelated stories. It's the one big story about Jesus coming into the world. And so, so this morning, what I want to show you from the story of Rahab is how God has woven together all the stories of the Bible to be his one big story of bringing Jesus. You guys ready to see that? If not, I'm going there anyhow. Joshua chapter 2. Look at verse 8. They're there in her home, and verse 8 says, Before the men, or the spies, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted 
And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. This is the word of God for us this morning. Right in the middle of this story of Rahab and the spies, these verses really serve as the centerpiece of the story. As a matter of fact, if you were to take these verses and diagram these sentences, what you would find is that the author, under the power of the Holy Spirit, is drawing our attention to a central truth in verse 10. Well, what the author does in verses 9 and 11 is he uses mirrored language to help us see that the central truth in all of these verses is right there in verse 10. Let me show you what I mean by that. In verse 9, Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And then at the end of verse 11, she says something that's a corresponding truth, sort of how she knows God could give them the land. She says in verse 11, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In other words, I know he's given you the land and I know he can because he's God and he's the only God. And as God, he has the right and the power to do as he pleases. Then in verses 9 and 11, she shares another mirrored truth. In verse 9, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that, look at this, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And then in verse 11, she says a really similar thing. She says, as soon as we heard it, Our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. In other words, she's saying this. Here's what she's telling the spies. All of the people of this land are afraid of you. And their hearts have melted already before you've ever stepped foot across the river Jordan. And and they don't want to fight you. They're so scared they would rather just run away. And she says that in verses 9 and 11 both. And she's doing something here. She's drawing our attention to the big reason why she has believed there is a God She believes that God could save helpless people like her and is worth aligning her life alongside and why the people of Canaan are no longer wanting to fight because they're so afraid of Israel. She says there's one thing that happened that that caused us to feel this way. There's something that occurred. So what's that thing? What is it that stirred her heart and the hearts of the inhabitants of Canaan, to respond this way. Look at verse 10. It's the central truth. She says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Okay, so stop right there. She says there are two things that happened. One happened about a year ago, which was when the Israelites defeated, not a year ago as in 2017. You're tracking with me, right? A year ago, before the spies enter in, Sion and Og were Amorite kings that the Israelites defeated there before they crossed the River Jordan. And she says, we heard about that that happened a year ago, but even before that, we heard another thing. We heard about the Red Sea. The Red Sea happened 40 years before the spies are standing in Jericho. 40 years ago, God had parted the Red Sea. 
It was something that happened before these spies were born because they were the faithful generation that came after this occurred. It happened probably before Rahab was even born. God parted the Red Sea and word traveled faster than Israel. It gets to Canaan. It arrives in Jericho and for 40 years Up to 40 years, people in Canaan and in Jericho hear about this nation called Israel that's on their way to Canaan. They hear about their God who is strong and mighty. He saves helpless people who are stuck at a dead-end road. They, They hear that God shows mercy to people like the Israelites. And they hear that God will give them more than they could ever dream or even dare to. To ask, they hear about this God who defeated the strongest army on the face of the earth using the very weakest of all people. And, and, and Rahab says it was that word that they have heard for up to 40 years in Jericho that caused her to believe, to believe in a God who shows mercy to broken people, to believe in a God who delivers Individuals who are enslaved beyond their ability to deliver themselves. It was the same word that caused the hearts of many Canaanites to melt like wax so that Israel could come in and take the land and defeat them. And even as she's telling the spies that God used that Red Sea parting to, to, to do something in her and to do something in the Canaanites. Just think about the fact God's using Rahab tell them to do something in the hearts of these spies, to build courage and faith. It's like hearing the enemy say, we don't really want to fight you. We're scared to death of you. We'd rather run away. It makes them courageous and bold. And so God's doing something. And I want to tell you what I see here, what I feel like the Holy Spirit showed me. I see God taking what seems like isolated events. One moment in time, like the crossing of the Red Sea, and I see him doing something that Israel didn't even know he was doing, right? He wasn't just saving Israel from Egypt at the crossing of the Red Sea. In a very real sense, he was sending a message to the Canaanites at the parting of the Red Sea. He was saving Israelites from Egypt and he was saving Israelites from even the Canaanites. And he wasn't just saving Israel. He knew that there would be a little girl born in a Canaanite city who would grow up to be a prostitute, a girl who desperately needed saved. She needed saved from the war against Israel. She needed a saved from the pattern of sin that had developed in her own life. And God knew that that little girl would turn and believe in him if she just heard about him. And so he used the crossing of the Red Sea to save Rahab. So in one event, God is saving Israel from Egypt. He's saving Israel from Canaan. He's saving Rahab from the Israelites. He's saving Rahab from her own sin. But there's more. Rahab actually joins the nation of Israel and she gets married to a Jewish man. It's a really awesome picture of how God gives new starts and new life Rahab and her husband have a child, and that child has a name. Anybody know the name of Rahab? Rahab's son, anybody know? His name is Boaz. Boaz. You guys may have heard about Boaz, right? Boaz is the man who showed kindness to a Moabite widow 
who was about to starve to death. That this Moabite widow was named Ruth. And Boaz shows Ruth kindness. So listen, at the Red Sea, God is saving Israel from Egypt. He's saving Israel from Canaan. He's saving Rahab from the Israelites. He's saving Rahab from the patterns of her own sin. And he's even saving Ruth from her own starvation. He is saving more than you know. But it doesn't stop there, right? Because Rahab not only has a child and that child marries Ruth. Ruth and Boaz have a son and his name's Obed. And Obed has a son and his name's Jesse. And Jesse has a son. Anybody know his name? David. David, the king of Israel, was used by God to save Israel from the Philistines and a man named Goliath. So get this, at the Red Sea, God is working to save Israel from Egypt. He's saving Egypt, or saving, he's not saving Egypt, they were doomed. He's saving Israel from Canaan. He's saving Israel from the Philistines. He's saving Rahab from the Israelites and from the patterns of her own sin. He's saving Ruth. But listen, there's even more. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Go to Matthew chapter 1. This is where we really think of the traditional Christmas passages. This beginning of the earthly story of Jesus. But I want you to see something in Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The book of the genealogy, the family tree, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He was the king who was promised to come and rule his people. He was the true offspring of Abraham that would bless the nations. And this genealogy in Matthew 1 is the story of how God brought this great king, this promised one into the world. And as you look through the genealogies of the Bible, you'll notice almost every single name is a man's name. Even not the men's names that we use today, they're still men's names. Almost never do you find a woman's name in the genealogies. But look down at verse 5 because in the genealogy of Jesus, there are several women named. In verse 5, there are two women named. Verse 5 says, talking about the lineage or the family tree of Jesus, and, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So get this, guys, get this. When God was saving Israel at the Red Sea, he wasn't just saving them from the Egyptians. And he wasn't just saving them from the Canaanites and the Philistines. He he wasn't just saving Rahab and Ruth. He was working to bring David into the world so that through the descendants of David, he could bring Jesus into the world. And here's what that means. When God was saving Israel at the Red Sea, he wasn't just saving them. He was working to save us. He was saving you and saving me by bringing Jesus into this world. He was working in the moment he parted the Red Sea to bring the person named Jesus, God in the flesh, into this world so that he could save every person who would place their faith and trust in Jesus to save them from their sin. And here's the lesson I pray we learn today. God 
is always doing more than we know. He's always doing more than we know. As Israel stood on the banks of the Red Sea, they had no idea how that crossing would occur that day. And they had no idea as they were going across how that work would affect them 40 years later. They had no idea how God would use it to bring a great king named David into the world. And they had no inkling of how God would use it to bring an even greater king named Jesus into this world as his fulfillment from the very beginning of a promise he'd made to a man and a woman in a garden in Genesis 3.15. They had no idea. But listen, God is always doing more than we No. And some of you desperately need to hear that today. Because you come to this place and your life feels like it has been a journey toward one dead end after another. You have felt like you are wandering in a wilderness and it's dry and it's barren and you are thirsty and tired and wearied from your journey and your prodigal shows no signs of coming home. Your career feels like a dead-end road. Even worse, your marriage may feel like a dead-end road. Your sickness shows no signs of retreat and the darkness of your own heart will not lift and you cannot help but wonder as you sit in this room today, what is God doing Well, I wonder what God's doing. What's God doing while I hurt? What's God doing while I wait? What's God doing when I'm weak and I'm lonely and I'm afraid and I'm confused? What is God doing? And I want to tell you this, friend. God's doing more than you know. He's always doing more than you know. And although God never tells us all that he is doing, there are a few things God tells us that he says he's always doing. And so before you leave today, I want to show you two things God is always doing that you can know while you wonder, what is God doing? And I want to show you these two things from Exodus 13. If you go back to Exodus 13, I want us to look at the crossing of the Red Sea, because here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that in the crossing of the Red Sea that God wasn't just saving Israel from Egypt or Canaanites or Philistines, that he wasn't just saving Rahab or Ruth. He wasn't just bringing David into this world. I'm praying that in this, God will give hope to your heart and mine, that he'd pour courage into you when you deeply need encouraged. So look at Exodus chapter 13. I'm going to show you two things from the account of the Red Sea. Verse 17 says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Stop right there. When God led Israel out of Egypt, here's what he knew. He knew that they weren't ready to trust him. 
Not fully and completely. They weren't ready to believe them. And we know that's borne out over time. They continually fall back in unbelief. And God says, if I take them by this road, even though the road is shorter, even though the road is straighter, even though the road feels quicker and in that way seems easier, they aren't ready to believe me. They don't fully and completely trust me. And so it would be terrible if I took them on the straight road. It would be bad for them because they would encounter the Philistines there. They'd see those giants and those mighty warriors and their hearts would melt because they don't believe and they would run right back to Egypt and they would not be delivered at all. He says it's not good for them to go the straight road. It's not good for them to go the easy road. It's not good for them to go the shorter road. I will take them down to the wilderness. Why? He says because I'm working for their good. It wouldn't be good for them to live back as slaves in Egypt. And the first thing you can know that God is always doing is God is always working for the good of his people. He's always doing more than you know and he's always doing more than you know to bring about your good. Now now go to chapter 14, verse one. Here's the second thing God is always doing. Verse one says this, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath. It's a great campground in Pi-Hahirath. I totally recommend it. Between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And look at this. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And even though he doesn't write it here, he could have just as easily said, and Rahab will know that I am the Lord. And the Canaanites will know that I am the Lord. God allowed Israel to go down a dead end road because it was precisely in the place of the impossible that God would show his glory most clearly. He would lead them to this place where he'd show off his power and he'd show off his glory. And you need to know this, God is always working both for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And even though you don't know all that God is doing, and he's doing more than you know, you can know this. He's doing more than you know to bring glory to his name and good to his people. And you know what he'll do in your life? You know what he'll do in your life? He'll take you down the harder road. He'll take you down the longer journey. He'll walk you through a wilderness or two. He'll put you in a place that is impossible. Because God's glorious power is displayed in weakness. So God's going to let you get weak. So you can know his glory and experience his good. God's glorious healing is manifest in our sickness so he will allow you to be sick so you can know 
His glory. God's glorious wisdom is displayed when our wisdom runs out and we don't know what to do. So God will allow you to feel over your head and to uh, get at the end of your rope so you can know his glory. God's glorious sufficiency is displayed when you have nothing else but him. So God will allow you to lose all other things so you can know His glory for your good. Friend, what is God doing when you don't know what God's doing? He's doing more than you know for your good and His glory. So what do we do? What do we do? I'll tell you what we do. We do what that first generation out of Egypt failed to do. We believe God and trust Him. We believe God and trust him when we don't know what he's doing. We believe God and trust him when we can't figure him out. We remember the Red Sea. We remember Rahab. We remember Jesus. And we trust him. I, uh, I was thinking about this yesterday. Yesterday morning, um, I was in my study. I was praying over this morning. And um, as a guy with deep and abiding ADD is want to do, I got distracted I was thinking about my mom and dad because I knew they were probably out Christmas shopping, prepared for us to come home. And I just was overwhelmed because I, uh, I love that feeling of, of coming home for Christmas. And I love that feeling I remember as a kid. And so I sent my mom and dad a text and I just said, Mom, Dad, thank you. Thank you for the way you always made Christmas so special. Thank you that you never let us forget what Christmas is really about. And I was just reflecting as a parent now with children, just what it took for my mom and dad to make Christmas special for us. They had five boys. Um, they had very little money. I think mom and dad's combined income was $15,000 a year with five sons. And that was with my mom working at the church my dad pastored. She was the custodian. Dad was the senior pastor. And uh, I don't know if there were any labor disputes ever, but they worked together for years. And so they didn't have much money or much, much ability. So mom and dad always opened a Christmas club savings account at the beginning of every year. And they would take a small portion of every single paycheck they got and they would tuck it away in that Christmas club saving account. And I didn't realize it at the time. I had no idea what was going into our Christmas. It was only as an adult that I learned some of the stories and I realized even more when I became a dad of my own what it took to bring Christmas to those five boys I do know that my dad almost never had more than $5 in his pocket. Not because he carried a debit card, but because he didn't have any more. That was all he had out of every paycheck to do what he wanted to do with it. And he never complained. He never acted like he did without, but he would have loved to go on golfing. He would have loved to go on fishing, but he didn't. He put that money in a Christmas club account so his boys could have Christmas. And I don't remember mom hardly ever buying new clothes, ever. She looked great, but she hardly ever buy new clothes. She didn't go on trips. She didn't have nice cars. She put every little bit of money that she had in that little Christmas club savings account. And she would get just as excited as us 
About December 1st of every year, mom would threaten us with life and limb that we weren't allowed to come into her room. Because her own little version of Santa's workshop had been set up right there in mom and dad's bedroom. And boys, don't ever come in this bedroom in the month of December. And we just wondered because we didn't know. What are we getting? What's going to happen? What's it going to be like? What's mom and dad up to this year to make Christmas special? We had no idea. We had no idea what we didn't even know. We didn't know all the sacrifices they were making. We didn't know how hard it was. And we didn't know what we were getting. It was always a surprise for us. We didn't know what they were doing beyond a couple things. We knew they were working and we knew they were making Christmas special for their sons. And even though we didn't know, we still got excited. Emily and I were talking last night. I, I miss that unique feeling in my stomach that I used to get when Christmas was on its way. Because even though I didn't know what it was going to be like, I knew what it was going to be like. It was going to be awesome. And you know, as I was thinking about that yesterday, and, and I just prayed and thanked God for, for the mom and dad that I have. And I pray God would make Emily and me, mom and dad like them, Emily's closet now says Santa's workshop. Beware, I think, something like that. Um, I realized this. For the vast majority of my life, I've been more willing to believe and trust that my mom and dad were doing everything they could for my good than I have been willing to trust that my God is doing even more. And it's made my life really special when I think about mom and dad. But guys, God is calling you. He's calling me to know that he's always doing more than we know. And even though he doesn't tell us all that he's doing, he tells us something he's always doing. He is doing everything in his power to bring about his glory in your life and your good throughout your life. And we're called to believe him and to live like we believe him. So before we leave and rush out into the rest of our day, would you bow your head? And even as I speak, many of you already know those areas of your life where you're struggling to believe God. You don't know what he's doing. Would you just acknowledge that in prayer? Would you bring that before the Father and say, Father, I don't know what you're doing here. Just acknowledge you can't see how it's all going to come together. And would you ask God to fill your heart with faith? To believe that he's working even in this moment in ways you cannot see Pray that he would fill your heart with faith and the kind of faith that in some way would make you feel like a kid at Christmas. That you can't wait to see how it's all going to work out. Pray for his grace to stir your heart. And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, Would you call on Jesus to save? 
God has worked in all of the events of this world throughout its history to bring his son Jesus into this world to die on a cross for your sin, to be buried and raised again to new life so that he could give his life to you. Would you call on Jesus to raise you up? To pour out his power and his grace on you? Father, I pray that you'd stir us with faith. God, I, I know that in this room there are people who are just in the middle of something. They're in that dead end road. It feels so impossible for them. Lord, I pray that you'd stir their hearts to believe that you're doing more than they know and you're doing more than they know for your glory and their good. That it will be glorious because you've promised it. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And it's our our joy to look forward so that we one day will see all that you have done. So God, receive this, this truth in our hearts as an offering of praise when we respond by believing you, by walking out these doors believing you, by waking up tomorrow believing you. You're good and you're glorious. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.